Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, or even listening to our podcast, it's a great day to celebrate Jesus together. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that this is the kind of church where you get to be you. There's no need to pretend that everything's perfect in your life. It's certainly not an hour's. We are regular people on a journey, allowing Jesus to make something beautiful out of our broken and often messy lives, one little step at a time, learning to live like Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the team here at Dayspring. That team is made up of people committed to helping you grow. We love to challenge, encourage, and equip people to become more like Jesus. So if you're on that journey too, we're looking forward to lending a hand. Even if you aren't sure that you're ready to be on that journey with us. Maybe you're skeptical about the claims of Jesus or skeptical of his followers. Well, this is still a great place, a safe place to explore and ask questions as you look for answers. We're asking questions and looking for answers too. So I think we can be pretty good company on your journey. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church by checking out our Facebook page or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. We're brought here today by the love that Sarah and Davis share for each other. We're going to be so happy. We'll be so happy, and I'm gonna crush it at being a husband. Happy anniversary, babe. Great idea coming here. It's been an amazing year. It sure has. <laughs> Wait, you do gifts on your anniversary? Why did nobody tell me this? Didn't he forget my gift? Quick, say something! I also ordered you a gift. It has not gotten here yet. <laughs> I have a feeling I know what it is. I mean, I've been hinting pretty heavily. Absolutely no idea. So, um, there's been something I've been wanting to talk to you about. Uh-oh. She caught me using the decorative soaps again. Have you, uh, thought about us... Having a baby? Kids, we just got married. Are you serious? I can't create a human. Yep, he's totally freaking out right now. Uh, crying, mess, noise, poop. Lots of poop. Honey. Yes. <laughs> what? Um, I'm ready to think about ha having the Why don't you open your gift? Okay. <laughs> what? We made a baby. You're pregnant. Yeah, I'm so pregnant. Oh, like how much? Like 100%. Like all the way pregnant. <laughs> it's gonna be a boy. He's gonna be awesome. He's gonna play football. It's gonna be a girl. She's gonna be my best friend. I'm gonna teach him how to build stuff. She's gonna do ballet. Throw stuff. Shopping. Break stuff. Theater. Burn stuff. Mommy's little princess. He's gonna be my little buddy. We're having a baby. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We're gonna crush parenting. I'm gonna crush it at being a dad. Cheers. <laughs> um, yeah, this is gonna need to be decaf. Is that a... Don't mind. Is that a pregnant thing? You know, after four weeks, I'm not sure that they're going to crush anything. <laughs> Welcome to the final message in our series, What Happy Couples Know. 
Uh, with the help of our friends at the Irresistible Church Network and Andy Stanley, we've been taking a deep dive into the mindsets and habits of, uh, uh, that set happily married couples apart from less than happily married couples. And so far, we've explored three things that happy couples know. First, we learned that all of us bring hopes, dreams, and desires into every relationship. Uh, we can't help that. Uh, for women, most of you have been uh, dreaming about your wedding, your husband, your future life together since you were old enough to pretend to be married. So you've had a long time to fill your bucket of hopes, dreams, and desires. Uh, most of us men, on the other hand, didn't start dreaming about our wedding, our wife, and our future until we met you. But while you've had a head start on us, we've made up for lost time and filled our bucket with hopes, dreams, and desires. Even though we didn't know we had a bucket, have no idea what's in the bucket or why I'm even talking about a bucket. Regardless of whether uh, we've thought about it or not, we all bring hopes, dreams, and desires into our relationships. We all do it. It's natural. We can't really help it. But if we're not careful, those hopes, dreams, and desires begin to feel like expectations. Happy couples avoid that whole expectation bit by making a simple little decision. Happy couples decide that while they owe each other everything, they are owed nothing in return. I know it doesn't make any sense, but that doesn't make it any less true. Uh, today we're going to discover that this isn't the only thing that happy couples do that doesn't make sense. But we'll get to that in a minute. But as, as you get close to happy couples, you realize that they live by this idea that they owe each other everything, but are owed nothing in return. The second thing we learned about happy couples is that happy couples understand that relationships are a race to the back of the line. They understand that when both people in the relationship are selfless, amazing things can happen in their relationship. And in the context of Christian marriages, we looked at a passage that describes this selflessness as a submission competition. The kind of competition where you decide that the other person is more important than you. Uh, the kind of competition where when you let them win, you don't really lose because the relationship wins. And then the third thing we learned is that happy couples know that sometimes you have to throw things, which out of context can be a dangerous statement. So before you start throwing things saying, Pastor Chris said it's okay, go back and listen to the entire, the, the entire message. There is a very specific application to the principle of throwing things. Today we get to the fourth thing that happy couples know and happy couples know that they have a choice. They have a choice. This is probably the most important choice you will make in a relationship as it relates to becoming a happy couple, to making a relationship attractive to you to be in and staying attractive to you to stay in. It's a choice that both people in a couple, any couple makes every single day. Uh, it's, a, it's a choice that whether you're aware of it or not, everybody makes this decision. But often it feels more like a reaction than a decision. So whether you are a happy couple or not, you're already making this decision. And I want to shine some light on it so that perhaps you can make a better decision tomorrow. And the next day. And into infinity and beyond. Uh, for many of us, it might not even feel like there's a choice. But there is. 
and happy couples make it. We'll call it the happy couple choice. A, a happy choice that happy couples probably don't even know that they are making, but it still makes all the difference. Have I piqued your interest yet? The choice we're talking about is found in one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to some first century Christians living in the city of Corinth. Uh, these were primarily new Gentile or non-Jewish Christians who were coming into their Christianity cold turkey. Uh, the Jewish Christians at least had a better background context for the kind of God that they were serving. These Gentile Christians were still trying to figure this whole Christian thing out. Uh, you mean there's only one God? Like, what do we do about the, all the other gods? And we used to go to the temples of these other gods, but now you're saying there's a different way? Uh, we don't really think about it this way because we, we live in a culture that is essentially uh, binds into the concept of one God, even if it doesn't really believe in or live for that one God. But at the time, the Apostle Paul had to start from scratch. He had to teach them that there was only one capital G God who was very different from all of the other pagan little g gods uh, that, uh, that they were worshiping before Christianity. None of those gods cared about people. They toyed with people, manipulated people. In some legends, they actually mated with people, but they didn't care about people, which meant that in a pagan religion, there was no morality. Uh, there were no ethics. You didn't have to do anything on earth toward other people to try to make these gods happy. To keep these gods happy, you just made sacrifices. The greater the cost of the sacrifice to you, the happier the god would be. And happy gods sent rain. Happy gods blessed the harvest. Happy gods gave you victory over your enemies. And happy gods gave you children. Which, incidentally, in some cultures, you would later sacrifice to keep the gods happy. It was a circle of life. Do whatever you had to do to keep the gods happy. It was this environment that the Apostle Paul showed up in uh, whenever he came to a Gentile city. So he's starting from scratch. Okay, this God I've introduced you to is totally different. He actually cares about you. He cares about all of his creation, which means that in order to make this God happy, it isn't about the sacrifices you make. It's about you treating other people the way this God treats people. It's about loving the people around you. So the Apostle Paul unpacks the ideas that Jesus originally introduced. It's this idea of a horizontal religion versus a vertical religion. A horizontal religion says, I'm going to treat you the way God has treated me. Uh, the old vertical religion was, I'm going to treat God the way God wants to be treated, so God will be happy with me. In all, we know that Paul wrote at least three letters to the Corinthian church. One of them has been lost uh, over time. Strangely, there are no copies of it to be found, leaving us with two power-packed letters to learn from. We'll be looking at his first letter if you want to turn or navigate to 1 Corinthians in your Bible or Bible app. And in this first letter, Paul's just finished explaining to them that if they really want to do this vertical religious thing, they can knock themselves out trying. But don't forget the way you treat people is still non-negotiable. It is the number one expression of how much you love God and respect what God has called you to do and be. 
And then we get to this very familiar chapter. It's one of the best known passages in the, uh, in the Bible. It's often read at weddings, maybe even your wedding. Parts of it are often quoted as wedding vows. And many of you already know which chapter I'm talking about. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's often called the love chapter. But once, once you really understand what Paul is trying to communicate in this chapter, you might change your mind on that. It's not really light, fluffy wedding literature. It's pretty gritty and determined. It makes love really practical and tangible, and most of it makes sense. But there's this one line that doesn't really make sense, so we often gloss over it, which is too bad because it is the secret to the decision or choice that happy couples make. Now, we're going to work our way into this one-line secret. But just to help us get there, get into Paul's mindset, we're going to start from the top. So this is how he starts. If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, he's just finished telling them, uh, because in their former religious gatherings, they would have these ecstatic utterances. Uh, they would speak other languages, or at least think they were. Uh, they would literally try to speak the language, uh, language of the gods, or the languages of the angels. And he's just finished telling them, uh, if you would like a version of that to be a part of your religious experience, that's fine. But keep your eye on the ball. That isn't the main thing. Even if you're successful and you actually tap into the language of angels, but you don't have love, you're just making a lot of noise. The vertical never trumps the horizontal. Now, of course, this isn't only true for speaking in tongues. It's true for everything we do. Uh, think about it this way. We live in a culture where money, fame, and power are seen as the pinnacle of success. We elevate the rich and famous and the powerful, and we make them role models of what it means to arrive, what it means to have a successful life. We want to be like them. The, the problem is that we only see the snapshot of their lives, not the movie. Anyone can look good in a picture, especially with tools like Photoshop at our disposal. What you can't see in an Instagram reel or Facebook post or TikTok is what someone is like when the camera isn't on them. We should never judge someone based on their speaking skills, their acting skills, their musical talent, the amount of money they have in their bank account, or the position they hold. By the way, we do this too in our Christian culture. We're just generally a little more subtle about it. We see a preacher who can bring the heat on Sunday, one who can really exegete scripture, whose church is big and influential, or a worship artist or worship team that has become famous, and we do the same thing as the culture around us. We put them on a pedestal, even though we're too spiritual to admit it, because at some level we know it shouldn't work. But whatever you are doing on the outside that other people may see may or may not communicate godly spirituality. Whether it is speaking in tongues, teaching the Bible, leading a growth group or Sunday school class, whatever makes someone seem more spiritually mature, all of those external manifestations of spirituality are not necessarily accurate representations of what God is doing in someone's life. You can fake those. I mean, if you really want to know what kind of person I am, you have to ask my wife and kids. You ask my friends. Because what happens on a stage with lights and sound isn't necessarily a reflection of how I live when the lights go off. It's not necessarily a manifestation of great spiritual depth of, or great faith. It's not necessarily an accurate picture 
of how I love. Love is the bottom line. And even if I had the gift of prophecy, that is, I could tell the future. And if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, I have perfect faith, whatever that is. And then, here it is again, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. Uh, in the original Greek text, Paul is saying that even if I'm the smartest person in the room, I can explain anything in the Bible. I can answer any question you have, but I don't love. I am literally a nobody. Knowledge about God and the Bible does not make someone a deep Christian. If you want to meet a deeply spiritual Christian, knowledge is not the measure. Love is the measure. Verse 3, if I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others... I would have gained nothing. Who does that? He says not 10%, not 20%, but everything. 100%. If I give 100% to the poor and then go a step further and sacrifice my body after there is nothing else left to give, I could certainly boast about how generous I am. But without love, I gain nothing. It's all wasted effort. Paul's essentially saying that anybody who gives to get gets nothing from God. Anybody who gives to gain, gains nothing. It all comes down to love. But what is love? We've talked, about, uh, we've talked before about how confusing this one command of Jesus was to these new Christians. They knew what love was in their culture. Uh, they had just come out of that culture. Love is their culture, even as our culture defines it, is an internal feeling. Much like I feel compassionate toward people who are experiencing hard times. Or I feel sorry for those children. Or I feel sorry for that couple. I feel bad for what you were going through. Love is like that. It's a feeling which isn't what Paul is talking about. And he knows how they think, so he wants to make this very, uh, this very clear to these ex-pagan first century Christians. The love Paul is talking about isn't an internal thing. This isn't a vertical thing. It is a very practical, horizontal thing. You want to know what love looks like? Here's the kind of love that I'm talking about. The kind of love I'm talking about is based on what you do. Love requires action. That's how it's measured. So let's start here. The kind of love I'm talking about is patient. There's that put somebody else first, go to the back of the line thing we've been talking about. Love is patient and kind. And think of it this way. Love defers. Love knows what I know. You know what you know, but I'm going to defer to you. Love is patient and kind Love is not jealous. When you are more talented than me, when you get more attention than me, when the spotlight is on you, love celebrates you. Love celebrates your talent. Love celebrates that you are getting the attention, that the spotlight is on you. Love is not boastful. Love does not boast. Love doesn't try to one-up to shut up the other person. You thought that was a great story. Let me tell you my story. No, I'm going to let you take center stage. I'm not going to rob you of that attention. I'm not going to envy you. I'm not going to boast in order to put myself above you. And love is not proud or rude. 
Then he continues with love does not demand its own way. I actually like the New International Version better here. It says love does not dishonor others. Love does not dishonor others by demanding its own way. In other words, if I have to dishonor you to get what I want, then the answer is no. Even if I can find a verse to support what I want, love that dishonors, love that demands isn't love by Paul's definition. Love that dishonors you is actually sin. It's sinning against you. Or you are sinning against the other person if you are the one dishonoring. So if it's dishonoring, it's off limits. Love isn't self-seeking. It goes to the back of the line. By the way, please remember, this, this passage wasn't written by Paul about love in marriage relationships. It's about how you love, how you love in every relationship, including marriage relationships. Paul continues, it is not irritable. It isn't easily angered. Love doesn't have a temper. And then pay attention to this one. It keeps no record of being wronged. Who does that? I, wouldn't you love to be in a relationship with somebody like that? And then in the middle of these rapid-fire, short, pithy definitions of love, Paul adds this next odd statement. It almost seems out of place, like it doesn't really fit here. Love, he says, does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Do you see what I mean about feeling a little bit out of place? We'll come back to this one in a minute. And then back to rapid-fire power pack statements. Love never gives up. That is, love always protects in the NIV. Love never loses faith. The NIV says always trusts, always hopes, and endures through every circumstance. Love perseveres. Okay, now most of those, most of those make sense to me. I can always protect someone even if I think they're wrong. And I'm a, an eternal optimist, so I, can, I always can hope for things to get better even when they aren't better. And every relationship has its ups and downs. Uh, there's always a struggle at some point, so I, I get persevering and enduring. But trust? In the Greek, this literally means to always believe or believes everything. That seems a little naive to me. But that's how Paul is defining love. Love defaults to trust. And trust is a keystone habit for happy couples. Let's illustrate it this way. In every relationship, every relationship, not just romantic relationships, married, dating, or engaged, in every relationship there will come a time when there is a gap between what we expect someone to do and what they actually do. It might be something small and seemingly unimportant, like I'll take out the garbage in the morning, or I'll have dinner ready when you come home, or I'll pick you up after work, and then they don't. Or it could be something more important like, I'll make sure I tell him, or I'll make sure I tell her. This one happens to me quite a bit. I have so many conversations with so many people about something and forget that Didi wasn't one of those someones. And later, I'm like, I'm sure I told you. How could I not have told you? I've literally talked to every other person about it. But I forgot. So in every relationship, there comes a time when there is a gap between what I expect, what we expect from the other person and what we actually get, what we experience from them. And every time that happens, we make a choice. 
Most of the time, we don't even realize we are making this choice because we just kind of go on autopilot and it feels more like a response or a reaction than a choice. But every time there is a gap between what we were told someone was going to do, what they led us to believe they were going to do, and what they actually did, that, that leaves a gap. Whatever, whenever something doesn't line up, we choose what we put in that gap. We either choose to believe the best. I don't know why he's late. I don't know why she did that. I don't know why they didn't follow through, but I'm sure they have a good explanation. And when we finally get all of the information, it will make sense. We either choose to believe the best or we choose to believe the worst. I can't believe she did it again. He did it again. You know, by now I just expect it. That's how it usually is. Happy couples. The kind of couples we've been talking about for four weeks now. Happy couples choose to believe the best. They make it a habit. It's just something that they do. They believe the best. It's a habit to just believe the best. That's what it means to believe in all things. To trust. It's a choice that might not always feel like you even have a choice. But it still always is a choice. Uh, years ago, in the first year of our marriage, Dee Dee and I were still learning how each other communicated. And frankly, we probably weren't even really that good at it anyway, because communicating as a married couple was still so new to us. We were still learning each other's rhythms, the way each other would think in this situation or that situation, and one of us would inevitably have to file a hurt feelings report which always had to be filled out in triplicate and filed four days before the hurt feeling incident. It was so confusing. Finally, one day in a flash of inspiration, Dee said, Chris, no one is on your side more than I am. No one wants you to succeed more than I do. No one is committed to you more than I am. No one wants to hurt your feelings less than I do. So can we do this? When I say something that can be taken two ways, a good way and a bad way, can you just default to the good way? And if you can't do that, then ask me what I meant. And I'll do the same. That was our version of believing the best, and I can't emphasize enough how it changed our relationship for the better. Every relationship comes up with a gap at some point. So happy couples make this a habit. Every time there is a gap between what I expected and what I experienced, between what I was told or led to believe or what I was promised, every time he didn't come through again. She was late again. I don't know where he is. I don't know where she is. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know why he didn't do or why she didn't. Every time there is a gap, we choose what we put in it. And happy couples always choose to believe the best until they just can't believe the best anymore. It's a keystone habit. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago. What's interesting is that in 2005, almost 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul, Marcus Buckingham, an author, motivational speaker, and business consultant based in California, wrote a book titled One Thing You Need to Know. It's a book about business management and leadership, being a better leader and making progress and organizational skills. And in this book, One Thing You Need to Know, he uses an illustration that actually demonstrates what we've been talking about. In this book, he cites a 20-year study. Over two decades, a group studied, would you believe it, happy couples. 
These couples were from US, the US, Canada, and Europe, and they were looking for a common denominator to explain their happy coupleness. Uh, these couples had gone the distance. They'd been together for at least a certain amount of time, and they still enjoyed being with each other. They still enjoyed each other's company. They weren't couples who were just tolerating each other, waiting for the other one to die first. Uh, they weren't just staying together for the kids, weren't miserable, but staying together because they couldn't afford to split up. So they asked these couples who still enjoyed being together questions to try to ferret out some common denominator. When they began this study, they had some assumptions, like, like anyone doing a study of this type would. Their primary assumption was that, in, that any couple who had gone the distance, who'd experienced bumps together but still loved to be together, they assumed that any couple like this would have downgraded their expectations of the other person over time as it relates to their motives, their character, and their, virtu their virtue. In other words, over time they'd realized, you know what, she's not as great as I thought she was. He's not as great as I thought he was, so I'm just going to lower my expectations. I'm going to have a more realistic view of my husband or my wife, and so consequently we'll just stay together. Their study showed the exact opposite. They asked these couples questions, all sorts of questions, and they had each person rate themselves and then rate their spouse in this list of questions. Consistently, these happy couples rated each other more positively in every quality than their partners rated themselves. In other words, they viewed their husband or wife, they rated their spouse higher than their spouse even rated themselves. It turns out they had an unrealistically positive view of that other person because they seemed to be blind to the loved one's shortcomings. One of the summaries of this study uh, was that love is blind. They went on to say that this positive view created what, what they called an upward spiral of love. An upward spiral of love. Basically, they, they had believed the best about their husband or believed the best about their wife for so long that it created a conviction they really believed. He's the greatest. She's the greatest. This conviction led to a sense of security because the, this idea that they are the greatest made them feel secure in the relationship. I trust them. The security created a higher level of trust. High levels of trust always lead to intimacy because intimacy is I trust all of me to you. I don't have to hold anything back because I feel like I can trust all of me to you. That's the heart of intimacy, trust. And this intimacy fostered love which underscored the conviction that he or she is the greatest, which created more security, which create, created more intimacy. It just fed on itself like an upward spiral of love. It just increased over time. At the end of the study, here was their recommendation. In, in a relationship, any relationship, find the most generous explanation. When there is a gap between what I expect and what I get, find the most let the soundtrack in your mind, the, the words that repeat over and over in your mind, uh, come up with the most generous explanation of the other person's behavior and then just decide to believe it. Which brings us back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love believes all things. Love always believes. Choose to believe the best. 
I love it when secular science supports what we've known all along because we serve a God who, who knows it all. The truth has been with us for 2,000 years. Modern science just got caught up. Now, obviously, this is easier said than done in real life. Things happen in real life that make believing the best challenging. I've been in ministry for a very long time. I've talked with all kinds of couples, with all kinds of marriages. So I get that there are obstacles to always believing the best. But before we get to those, don't miss this point. Every time there is a gap, even if it is the same gap again and again and again, every, every time there is a gap, you and only you decide what you will put in that gap. You will either believe the best or assume the worst. Whichever way you go, you are the one who makes the decision. It's a choice you make. Now back to the obstacles. One of the obstacles is what we actually experience. He did it again. She did it again, just like clockwork, over and over, the same gap. Another obstacle is that you bring you into the relationship. I bring me. We bring who we are into the relationship. We didn't show up in the relationship as a blank slate. We showed up carrying all of the baggage of everything we've gone through before. Our father wounds, our mother wounds, the wounds from previous boyfriends or girlfriends, the wounds from everything we've experienced through our life. We bring our fears and insecurities. We bring our history with us. And our history can make it harder for us to trust someone. Our history gives us triggers. Certain behaviors trigger certain responses in us. We can't really help this. But even with all of that baggage, with all of that junk, with all of our inconsistencies, it is still your choice what you put in the gap. Suspicion is a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you assume the worst most of the time, eventually you will find something to be suspicious about. Because when you're in a relationship with a person you don't trust, a person with low trust, you're on pins and needles all the time waiting for the other shoe to drop. When you're in a relationship with a person whom you feel is always looking to catch you at something, just waiting for you to do something wrong, you will never be able to relax. You'll end up off balance, which will make you so careful and cautious and controlled in your behavior and with your words that it will be suspicious. It will look like you're up to something, even if you're not. When you are the person who brings low trust into the relationship because of a previous relationship, when you are that person, you accidentally create a, an environment in the new relationship that sets the other person up to do the very thing you fear they will do, but they had no intention of doing. Because suspicion is always, almost always, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It actually sets the stage for the thing you fear most. That's why you should pay attention to the person you are, not just what the other person is doing. Both are important, of course, but it is so much easier to focus on what he said, what he did, as, a, as, a, as opposed to who I am in the relationship. But even with all of that, we still get to choose. 
Now with all of that as our setup, I want to go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and look at a couple of verses that we went through pretty quickly a few minutes ago. Because they also lean into this principle of choice that we've been talking about. That we get to choose every single time. Let's start with verse 6 again. It does not, that's love, love does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love does not rejoice about injustice. The New International Version says love does not delight in evil. Uh, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. You know what that means? It means that love isn't trying to catch the other person doing something wrong. Love isn't trying to build a case against the other person so they can finally step in and read them the right act. You did this and said this and you said that and did that. Love isn't trying to catch the other person doing something wrong. Love doesn't keep score from the past. Instead, love never gives up. Or love always protects. Never gives up on what? Protects what? Love always protects the relationship from suspicion. Love always protects the relationship from a lack of trust. That's what never loses faith means. Ne love never loses faith in the relationship. Love is protective of the relationship. Yes, this is what I thought they were going to do. And no, they didn't do what they said they were going to do. They all have to deal with that. We'll have to talk it through. But what I put in the gap will impact the relationship. Maybe even as much as the gap they created. Love always trusts. Love always believes. Love chooses a generous explanation. And then Paul says love is always hopeful. Love always hopes. Love trends positive. It's an upward spiral. Love doesn't allow itself to go negative. And then love endures through every circumstance. Love is realistic. The word endures implies resistance. It implies that there will be some doubt, will be some negatives. There may be some things from the past that rear their ugly heads in the future. You know that. Love is realistic. But I am going to persevere. I'm not going to give in to that negative trend. I'm not going to allow that environment to enter this relationship through me. I'm not going to set the other person up for failure, to fall into a trap that I've laid for them through my expectations. Love is determined to trust anyway. Which now brings us to you. Based on everything you've just heard, based on your personality, based on your experience and what you know about yourself, do you believe the best? Or do you assume the worst? Which way do you go? Do you believe the best when there is a gap? Do you just find yourself assuming that there must be a good reason? Or are you the person who thinks there better be a good reason? I'm already mad. So she better have a good explanation. He better have a good reason. Even though I don't have all of the information, when he finally calls or she finally calls or he finally texts or she finally comes home, they have a lot of explaining to do, Lucy. <laughs> Which way do you go? And let me be clear, this is about you. Regardless of who you are in the relationship with, regardless of what he's like or what she's like, it's still your choice every single time. 
Happy couples know that it's a choice. And every single time they choose to believe the best. Now, I know that some of you are arguing with me in your heads. But think about it this way. What is the alternative? What are the other options? And are those options going to lead to happy couple status? Here are the options. In, in case you want to work this out, to work out your own solution, delight in uncovering mistakes. Thrive on speculation. Assume the worst. Embrace doubt. You can work that path out on your own. But before you head down that path, imagine yourself sitting with your kids at some time in the future as, as you're talking with them about their future with their special someone. What kind of advice would you give them? What script would you have for them to become a happy couple? Are you basically going to say, well, listen, lay a trap. Lay a trap to catch them every time they do something wrong. You won't have to wait long. Eventually, he'll step into it. And you can go, aha, gotcha. And make sure you spend your life speculating and anxious every time she's late, every time he's late. Wouldn't it be better to say, you know what? At some point, there is going to be a gap between what you expect and what you get. There will always be gaps. You choose what you put in the gap. And I promise you, it will come out better for you both if you decide, if you build a habit, a pattern of filling the gap in with the best, believing the best. Now, here's my assignment for you for this week. For those of you in a relationship, which is all of you, it just might not be a marriage relationship, but do this for a week. For a week, just decide. Even if nine out of ten times there isn't a good excuse or explanation for what he did or what she did. Just, just for a week, decide. You know what? Before I get all the information, before he calls, before she gets home, before we get together tonight, I'm going to come up with a generous explanation and I'm going to believe my generous explanation for his or her behavior. Just for a week, choose to trust. Trust equals acceptance. When you trust me, you are accepting me. If you want to be accepted by somebody, if you want to accept somebody, you just communicate, I trust you. Our hearts and behavior are ultimately drawn toward trust. And when you create an atmosphere, a pattern of high trust, when, when trust becomes your habit, you create an environment of acceptance and our hearts are drawn toward acceptance. This doesn't mean that you don't have difficult conversations, by the way. Of course, you're still going to have difficult conversations. And when it's the, converse, the same conversation about the same thing over and over and over, of course you talk about it. But then you revert to your default settings. Restore the backup and get back to trust. The past is the past and I'm not keeping score. Even if, like every other time, I'm still going, I, I, it's not a good excuse. I'm still going to default to a generous explanation. I'm choosing to believe the best because that's what happy couples do. Happy couples choose the best every time. That's what happy couples do and choose. And I want us to be a happy couple. Let's pray. Father, we know um, 
that in this room, in this moment, uh, we know that this is more theory than practice. This is much harder outside of this room. And all over the place, watching online and here in this room, there are, there are um, relationships that are really challenged and believing the best seems like such a far reach. This is, this is easy as can be, which is not always that easy, but easy as can be when, uh, when a, a, a godly man and a godly woman get married and they live this way right from the start. But that's not how life works most of the time. We bring our baggage into a relationship and we let it get, uh, get in the way of the relationship and we get to the place where we're just empty, where we can't believe anymore. Those are the couples that, that I just lift up to you right now and pray that the Holy Spirit would, would do everything that he can do to, to restore hope and faith and trust. Love is risky. And we pray, Father, that um, you would give us the courage to take the risks that we need to take to be happy couples. We pray that as we do that, that the Holy Spirit would do his perfect work in each relationship, in each person. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, on your own or with others, will help the truth of God's Word begin to shape your life as you grow to be like Jesus. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. This ministry is made possible because of the faithful giving of people who call Dayspring their home church. God's work in their lives has left them changed, has made them more like Jesus, and they've come to understand how God uses their generosity to encourage others to become like Jesus as well. So if you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. We count it a privilege and to play a small part in God's perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. If this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. Until we meet again, I am praying that God's richest blessings would overflow in and through your life.